pray. Father, as our, our, our collect of the day this morning confessed our desperation that without you we're unable to please you. And without you, Lord, we'd also say we're unable to hear you. So we just ask right now that you would release your spirit in this place to, ter- to open every ear and to open every heart, Lord, where there are those places in us that would be resistant or hard towards your word and what you want to speak to us through it. We just pray, God, for a softening and an opening of everything in us so that we can receive everything that you have for us today. We have the privilege, Lord, of opening your word and actually receiving revelation from your very heavenly realms to teach us the truth about who you are. So we just pray this morning um, for your anointing to be on your word. And I just ask that your anointing would be on my lips, Lord, so that what is spoken today is truly from you. We thank you, Lord, for this time in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning again, everyone. And good morning, Facebook world. I want to start this morning with one of my favorite all-time quotes by one of my favorite all-time authors, A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer famously said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Then he said a little bit later, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. That's profound. How we think about God is the most important thing about us because our soul will move towards that image that we have, which could be good or bad. And it is so important that, 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 that God's people have the right image of who he is based on what he's revealed about himself from his word and nothing else. Amen. So I want to look at, uh, about uh, something, a particular aspect of God that he reveals to us in his word today. And it's his goodness because God's goodness is the means to our wholeness. Are you with me? God's goodness is the means to our wholeness. And if we don't have a biblical true grasp on his goodness in the magnitude of it, we will not be able to be whole. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to move towards a true image of who God is? I do. And I want that for you as well. So this morning, I want to look at Psalm 103. Now, some of us, we've been wounded by an image of God as as a mean-spirited dictator who's devoid of compassion and tenderness. And if you have this view of God, you are almost sure in your relationship with God to lack joy and intimacy. The enemy loves it. He loves for people to have that view of God because they won't have joy and intimacy in their relationship with God. Now, on the other hand, some of us have been malnourished by an image of God as a a permissive pushover who just winks at sin and kind of just, you know, as long as we're nice to one another, he doesn't really care what we do. And that's that's a false view of God too, right? And if we have that uh, view of God, we won't ever be conformed to the purity of Christ, which is a standard to which Scripture calls us, right? So we want to find what is the right view of God for the sake of our wholeness, right? This has everything to do with what kind of people we become, how we live our lives, our eternal destinies. There's so much hanging on our right understanding of God and receiving from his word what he says about himself. Are you with me? Have you all had your coffee? You're awake? Very good. All right. I'm going to preach from the Psalms in my prayer book because that's the translation that we have in our bulletin this morning. Let's, let's look at Psalm 103 and just, we're just going to work through several of the verses. We're not going to go through all 13 that we read this morning, but we're, we're going to read through several of them. And this is by David. 
a man after God's heart, a man who loved the presence of the Lord so much. But David was also, too, experienced a lot of brokenness in his life because of his sin. But he was a man still after God's heart who cherished and relished the presence of the Lord. So listen to how the psalm starts. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Does that sound like worship to you? That sounds like the kind of worship Jesus describes in John 4. Worship in the spirit and in truth. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, so the psalm begins with worship. And this is important to note. You'll, you'll see this as, it, as we go along because we're going to circle back to this idea. But it begins with worship. And, and David says, all that is within me. And some translations say, uh, with my inmost being. You see, our worship, it falls short if it's not coming from that place within us, from our inmost being, from all that is within me. Okay, if you're more worried about what people around you think when you're worshiping than you do about God's glory and his goodness, you haven't yet given him everything that's within you. Have you ever experienced that, that had that experience where you kind of just like in worship and you're sort of just anticipating that the song will be over with because the people around you are really getting into it and worshiping and you feel sort of uncomfortable with how they're worshiping and you're just anticipating the song to get over with? You are not giving him your inmost being in worship, right? You're not yet fully free where you're just free to worship him from everything that is within you. God doesn't want us to hold anything back when we worship him. And not, not, no one, no, nobody's going to look uniform with everybody else. There's not one way to worship. But what matters is that it comes from our inmost being. Is your focus, is the gaze of your soul fixed on the king of heaven when you worship? Or are you just simply thinking about the words on the page or the turkey sandwich that's waiting for you at home or whatever it is, the football game? Does it come from your belly? Does it come from your gut? Is everything in you like David longing to bless the Lord and give him the praise that is due his name? So it starts with worship. We could call it doxological is what the theologians would call it. The psalm is doxological because it starts with worship. You see, you have an opportunity today. I love what what someone recently said that I was listening to in, in his message. He said, you know, every time the worship begins in church, it's a sort of a test. God is looking What will he do? What will she do? What will be stirred in their soul or in their spirit or what will not be stirred? Right? So, you know, this is not to like impose guilt on anybody or anything like that. It's an encouragement to say, today you have an opportunity. The next worship song that starts in our midst, the next corporate prayer that we do together, you can start to give God, you can just start to want to give God everything from your inmost being. Okay, that's the place to start. Right. You might say, God, I don't think I've given you all my inmost being. I don't think I'm really worshiping you from that deep place, but I want to. Those would be sweet words in the Lord's ears. Okay, so we have an opportunity today, today, today to become better, deeper worshipers. Amen. So let's move on into the passage a little bit. David says in verse two, he repeats it. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That is, don't let all of the things that the Lord has done for you slip from your mind. How often in your time of prayer, in your secret place, do you take some time to meditate on the goodness of the Lord to you, even in the previous week? What an important thing. Why? Because it draws our hearts up into worship. 
It draws our hearts up into the heavenly realms when we think about everything that God has done for us, every good thing he has done for us, even if it's just in the recent past. He says, forget not all his benefits. Why? Because when you remember them, they move your heart toward God. When you reflect on his goodness, it moves your heart toward him. This is why it's so important to have a proper vision of God's goodness. Now, what does that goodness look like? David is about to tell us because he says, forget not all his benefits, and he's going to go on to list a whole bunch of them. So it's beautiful. So number one, first and foremost, this is just the gospel in Psalm 103. I love it. The gospel before the gospel even was made known to man, because this is in the Old Testament many years before Jesus, about a thousand years before Jesus even walked the earth. But it anticipates the gospel. He forgives all your sins. Everybody say all. He forgives all your sins. David knew what it was like to bear the guilt and the shame of sin. He had an affair with a woman and had her husband secretly murdered in a conspiracy to try to cover it up, got her pregnant, and his family suffered the effects of that sin for years to come. He knew the weightiness of of sin, but he knew God's forgiveness. He knew his mercy. He knew his goodness towards him. He expounds on that in Psalm 51, another psalm, the mercy of God that restored him from his place of sin. You see, that is the goodness of God. You know, um, we, we know this in concept that God is most clearly revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. But why is that so important? Because we learn of the goodness of God most clearly and most definitively in the face of Jesus. What did Jesus come to earth to do? To die in humility for our sins, to wipe our record clean, to give us a new life, to bring us back home to our heavenly father who longed for us as we wandered from him and rebelled against him. That's the goodness of God. That's the goodness of God. He looks out in his humanity and instead of just being done with it, he sends his only son, his beloved, the son he's been loving for all of eternity past and all of eternity future. And he sends his son to bear the punishment for our sins. That's good. That's why it's called good news, right? That's why it's called good news. The gospel is good news. I remember um, I was talking to my sister, one of my younger sisters this week, and I said, could I share this story? And she said, oh, yes, absolutely. And there was um, a time in, in our past many years ago when she just, Christy always wanted to be married. She always wanted to have babies. And she's married now and has babies. But there was a time when she was dating this guy. And he just, we all just kind of knew he just wasn't great. He just wasn't a great guy. And they, they, they moved off. We were in Michigan, in, in mid-Michigan, and they moved off way up north and where all the casinos are. And he was working in a casino as a car dealer. And she was just kind of living this life. She just wandered from the Lord because she had made an idol out of, out of this boyfriend. And um, she lived that life for a while. And then her testimony is that she was sitting in a church one day, this little church up there in, in, in northern Michigan, somewhere really rural. And she's sitting in this church, and they sang that song that says, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And the goodness of God just wrecked her heart. And she said, I got to go home. And she came home to us, and she came to the door. I can remember it to this day. And she was just weeping and repenting for like leaving us and like knowing that we were against it and knowing that she had left the Lord and we just embraced her. We just celebrated. We had so much joy. And I thought that's a picture of the goodness of God for those who are wandering and then come home. Can we, can we be about reaching those people in this church? 
Do you know how many are in this community? You could walk down to the Lake Lilies Farmer's Market and probably find a couple hundred of them. And they need to be told about the goodness of God and how he longs for them to come home. It was a beautiful picture. I just remember, oh my gosh, the waterworks were going when she came home for all of us. It was just such a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is the good news that we are called to be the bearers of. Now, you see, God, not only does he pardon a repentant sinner, not only does he pardon a repentant sinner, he throws a party. He throws a party. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. When a lost sinner comes home to God, he rejoices over them with singing. Some of us today, we have a concept that that God loves us at some level. But if we're true with ourselves in the depths of our being, we don't believe that God likes us very much because we mess up too much. We don't spend enough time in prayer. We don't read the Bible enough. And the goodness of God is like a healing balm for those wounds that some of us carry very deeply. And we can kind of try to cover them up when we're at church or in public around other people. But some of, some of you today know what I'm talking about. It's hard to know that God not only has forgiven you, but that he favors you, that he loves you. You're in Christ. You belong to him. You're his son. You're his daughter. Isn't that amazing? That's the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. Last week we talked about that. Remember that quote? It is good uh, to know God as a judge who pardons you, but it's much better to even better to know God as a father who cares for and loves you. That is the goodness of God. And it just drips in this psalm, doesn't it? It just drips from this psalm. Oh gosh, we haven't got very far, have we? But that's okay because we're talking about the gospel and that's the center of God's goodness. The center of God's goodness is when you look at the cross and you see Jesus hanging there and dying for your sins. That's where God's goodness is most fully revealed. Because that was what enables us to become his sons and daughters. Okay, verse 3, uh, moving on. It says, he heals all your infirmities. It's a word for deadly diseases or for diseases, for, for um, sickness. So let's just wrestle with this for a second, okay? Because we're all about healing in this church. And we've seen many, many healings in this church over the years. But... It says he heals all your infirmities. So why does it seem like we don't experience that? I don't know. I don't know why we don't experience it all the time. But what I do know is we experience it a lot. And when we do, when we pray for someone in the name of Jesus and they're healed by his power miraculously, heaven just invaded earth. And the thing about this is that the Bible says the vision that everything is moving towards all of us, including our physical bodies, is one of healing. So Revelation uh, chapter 21 says, this is this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And, and John's talking about God and he says, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So will God ultimately heal all of our infirmities and all of our diseases? Yes. Do some of us still battle with those things in this life? Yes. Do we give up praying for a miracle? No. Because God wants to show and reveal his goodness 
in the ministry of healing, which is still alive and active today. How many of you have ever experienced any amount of healing in your body from Jesus, miraculously touched? About three quarters of you. That's amazing. (laughs) Praise you, God. Thank you, Father. Verse 4. He redeems your life from the grave. Do you know that so many people in the world don't realize that their life is in the grave? Before I knew Christ, I thought I was just living life to the fullest, man. I was going to, oh my gosh, every music concert and festival in the, in the, in, uh, in the United States, going all over the place, traveling all the time, party, drugs, alcohol, girls, whoever I wanted, just everything. Party, party, party. I thought I was living the life, right? I was spiritual, but not religious. I was all of that, but my life was in the grave. I didn't know God. I wasn't walking with God. I should have died in a car accident on my 18th birthday. And the Lord, the Lord saved me from eternal separation from him because I was living in rebellion against him. And I won't go into all, my whole story, but I'll just share a couple snippets with you. I thought I was living in the life, but this voice was haunting me, this voice that I had been told about growing up in the church, this gospel of Jesus that I've been growing up with in the church and the seeds had been planted. I was done for because his seeds get planted in you and he's going to bring them to fruition. Amen. And I kept being haunted by this voice. You're on the wrong path. You know you're on the wrong path. You want your spiritual cake and eat it too. You want the world and you want spirituality. And I knew the Lord was calling me. I knew he was calling me home. And it took him quite a while, about 10 years to break me down. He's patient. He's patient with you. He's so patient waiting for us to come home. But he, Joshua's words, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the Lord took me out of this place of just being this, this, this party animal, you know, tattooed hippie, whatever you want to call me, and, and, and raised me up. I was just in my bedroom one day, and I hadn't been, uh, I hadn't been doing drugs because I was on a dietary cleanse. And um, my mind was kind of clear, and his voice just came through so powerfully. And I started watching talks on youtube this that and the other thing about jesus and his resurrection and it was like the voice of the lord came to me and was like so you see that it's true what is it going to do in your heart what are you going to do with it in your heart and i had to get to that place of swallowing my pride and getting down on my knees and saying i surrender i surrender because you're so good. You've been after me for so many years. And I realized it. And it just, peace was released from heaven over me. And there was a celebration over me. Over me. Amazing. So David says, not only does he lift up your life from the grave, which is a picture of resurrection, right? Paul tells us that those who are in Christ are seated with him in the heavenly places. Your resurrection life is guaranteed if you are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the seal upon you. And you're like an envelope with a royal seal going to resurrection life. If you're in Christ, that's the hope. That's the guarantee. Not only does he lift us from the grave, listen to what David says next. He crowns you, King David, he knows about crowns, right? He crowns you with mercy, also translated compassion and loving kindness. 
Say this, I have a crown. Say it like you really believe it. I have a crown. Your royalty, your beloved by your Father in heaven. If you have turned your eyes to the Savior and surrendered, He has taken you and pulled you into the very life of Jesus. And you're seated with Him in heaven and your royalty, your kings and queens and princes and princesses in the most true sense ever. Because Jesus tells us in Revelation that those who conquer, those who don't fall away and, and, and persevere to the end will reign with him over the nations. Your kings and queens, don't forget it when life gets hard and the temptations to fall away come because they will in the days and the years to come. Don't forget who you are. He's crowned you with mercy and loving kindness. That's good news. Is God good? Is God beyond good? Now, I want to shift gears just a little bit and look at verse 11 because it's important that we understand very clearly upon whom God's goodness and grace rests. I believe that for a long time, I need to chase this rabbit just for a minute, forgive me. But I think for a long time, the church, at least in the West, has gone too far in one or another direction. One is that God is just indiscriminately good and compassionate and loving. Remember we talked about the wrong views of God at the beginning. That if you're covered by grace, if you've said the sinner's prayer, God doesn't even see your sin. He doesn't even worry about it, doesn't even sweat it. It doesn't matter, you know, even if you were to really just get, you know, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Somebody who lives their life like the world and calls themselves, there's no such thing. He saved us by his grace to live godly lives, Paul says in Titus, in this present age. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian, okay? But some, some churches have gone to the, you know, and I know, and I have friends and family members who live that life. They say, God just wants me to be happy. And you have, Cameron, you have your God, but my God just wants me to be happy because they want to live a life of sin because they don't want God. And we don't want to make that mistake. But then churches also, on the other hand, for too many churches have gone into this hellfire and brimstone direction that just every Sunday they're hammering, hammering the wrath of God, hammering the anger of God to the point where people don't even realize anymore that God is good and compassionate and that he loves them because they're being guilt tripped or shamed into repentance, which doesn't really bring about true repentance. Paul says, do you not know that it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance in Romans chapter 2? So for so long in the West, we've had sort of these theologically liberal churches that just anything flies. God's love covers you no matter what. And then we've had super hyper conservative hellfire and brimstone preaching God is this uh, just angry judge who just can't wait to lash out on you. And we don't have any balance and that both of those miss the biblical heart of God. But listen, that's a little bit of a, but I think we're coming back into a season. I'm hopeful where in our churches, we begin to hear about the whole measure of God, who God is. Right? Paul says in Romans 11, behold the goodness and severity of God. We, we, we don't, we, God is the most tender, compassionate, loving father, but we don't like mess around and play fast and loose with his grace and live a life of sin, not really worrying too much about it. That, that's to really reject him in practice. 
Okay, so we want to have balance. And David says this. This is, this is important. I'm going to steer back into the psalm now. I just needed to go there for a second because I'm hopeful that we get balanced again in the church in the West. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. Okay, that's really high. The heavens are referring to the skies. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his mercy great upon those who fear him. His mercy is not abounding. His goodness is not abounding in the sense of saving goodness, salvation, to just everybody indiscriminately. Okay, there's a teaching called universalism that has crept into the church. And, it, and it's, it's, it's demonic, to be honest with you. Because it says, in the end, everybody will be saved. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says God wants everybody to be saved. And that he's patient. And that he's waiting waiting a long time to give people time to repent and turn to him. But it doesn't say everyone will be saved. Listen, let's listen for a second, because some of you will hear this stuff when you're on the internet looking up Christian talks and stuff. You'll hear Christian teachers spouting this stuff. If everyone's going to be saved in the end, why did Jesus die? You could be a Buddhist and die, and you'll go to God the Father, the God of the Bible. Why did Jesus have to die? So to say that in the end everyone's going to be saved is to say, is to paint a picture of God that's actually quite cruel because he sent his son and unleashed all of his perfect justice and wrath upon him on the cross just because. He didn't have to. He's going to declare everyone right in the end anyway, even if they hate him. It makes no sense. Think about it, right? Behold the goodness. Don't lose the vision of that, but behold the severity of God. His mercy is for those who fear him. Now, I want to talk about that just for a minute because the fear of the Lord can be misunderstood. The fear of the Lord is not, oh, God, I sinned. Oh, please don't. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean being afraid of God. In fact, those who fear the Lord have no reason to be afraid of God. The fear of the Lord is a holy reverence and awe for who he is. His goodness, his love. But the fear of the Lord, it is something that it presses upon you a little bit and it reminds you, you're called to live a righteous life. You're called to live life guided by his spirit and to block out every voice that is drawing you into sin, right? Jesus says, he says, if your hand's causing you to sin, whack, cut it off. Now he's not speaking literally. There's been some people in church history who have taken that literally and it didn't really turn out well. He's speaking hyperbolically, but he's making a point. Whatever it is that turns your heart away from the Father, get rid of it at all cost. Get rid of it at all cost. Because it, sin draws us away from his goodness, from his love. And, and sometimes we get caught in patterns of sin. We get stuck there in patterns of sin and what we do with that is really important because if we start being overwhelmed because it, when, you, when you get taught, caught in a pattern of sin, it kind of opens up doors for the enemy to influence you. And the enemy will say, oh, guilt, shame, condemnation, you're done. Move away from God. Just let it go. Go live a happy life. Da, da, da. You can think about that stuff later. But if we get stuck in a pattern of sin, if you, if you find yourself, if you're stuck in a pattern of sin, run to God. He's not, law, he's not short on mercy. It's abundant. It overflows. Just run to him. Just give it to him. Just pour it out to him. Let him let him refresh you, right? He's eager to do that, okay? So I don't want anybody to walk out of this place today who's been battling with sin or a particular sin or something to feel condemned. I want you to feel hear loud and clear the goodness of God 
He's eager to release it upon you. So now, why is this important, this sort of distinction? It's important because we don't want to give people a false sense of hope who are presuming on his goodness, but actually rejecting the revelation of his son. Or presuming on his goodness and maybe even giving lip service to the revelation of his son, but in practice rejecting him. We don't, we don't want to give people a false assurance and say, hey, as long as you've said the prayer, you're good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, say a sinner's prayer and you're guaranteed to be with God. Right? God's, God's invited you into a family. And like with any good, healthy family, there's conditions for remaining in it. And if you start dabbling in the world and starting, you start to love the world too much in the things of this world, there's no place, John, the beloved disciple says, if that happens, there's no place for the love of the Father in you. And what happens is that there's a cycle and God is not, you know, when you sin, like going, I'm done with you. It's that you start to love sin. And you start to move away from God. That's the danger of sin. Okay, this is my view on this, whether or not you can lose your salvation. I guess we're going there just for a second. God gives us freedom to walk away. But it, and if we lo- we, so we should fear sin, right? We should have a healthy fear of sin. I was, last night, I was, we were at some new friend's house, and they have a pool, and the, the dads were in the pool with the kids. And um, he said, I want my daughter to have a healthy fear of the water. She's three. She can't swim yet. But that's good. We want to have a healthy fear of sin because we can drown. if We get caught up in it and we don't turn back to the Lord. Okay? Behold the goodness and mercy of the Lord. Do not forget it. The fear of the Lord is ultimately a recognition of the goodness of the Lord. Okay? My favorite scene ever and uh, in, in, one, in one of my favorite scenes ever in a movie is in one of the Lord of the Rings movie. I can't remember if it's the second or third one, but uh, I probably told this before in a sermon, so forgive me if you've heard it. <laughs> but uh, Bilbo has got the ring and its seductive power. You know the story, right? Well, you'll figure it out if you, if you don't. He's got this ring and it's got seductive power. He's on a journey to try to take it to destroy it. But whoever's in possession of it, it gives them great abilities and supernatural power. And so it's, he's possessive of it. And Gandalf, who's the great wizard, the white wizard Gandalf, who represents a sort of figure of purity and holiness and goodness. And they're having a conversation together. And Gandalf is, mentions to Bilbo, you do need to hand the ring over to me because I need to get it to the next place. And Bilbo changes the subject. Right? There's just that allure. He knows he needs to hand it over to him. And... Um, then And then Gandalf says, Bilbo, give me the ring. Okay? It's such a picture of God the Father dealing with our sin. Bilbo, give me the ring. And his eyes start to turn black and he says, it's mine. It's my precious. Right? That spirit consumes him. I want my sin. And Gandalf bangs his staff and it's like lightning flashes and it shakes the room. And he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to help you. And he runs to him. You know, Gandalf is like as high as the ceiling and he's this little hobbit. He runs to him. He just squeezes him like this and Gandalf embraces him. So what a beautiful picture of how God deals with us in our sin. He knows it will destroy us. He wants us to recognize his majesty and his holiness and have a right fear of the Lord, to run to him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I love that. If you haven't seen those movies, 
You should. We should do a Lord of the Rings marathon at the church soon or something. Wouldn't that be fun? Popcorn and everything. Here's what it comes down to. If you've set your eyes upon Jesus, okay? We're all at different places in our journey with the Lord. But if you set your eyes upon Jesus and you've turned to him and recognize your need to be forgiven of your sin and, and born anew, as Jesus says, born again of the spirit. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and of spirit. The spirit gives life. I was in the Lord. I'll just say this because it just came to mind. So it might be the Lord. I was in prayer the other day with the Lord and I just was having this tender moment with Jesus. And I felt like he said, a lot of people who sit in pews and churches that think they know me, but they haven't been received the new birth. They actually haven't come to me and like bared it all and said, I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life. Many people, right? So if that's, if that's you, if that's you today, you can do that. You can just tell them from your inmost being, I need that. I want the new birth. Jesus, I want you to come in. I've known about you all my life, but I want to know you. Okay, you can do that today. Because if you unite yourself to Jesus and you give your allegiance to him, because he's a king, right? If you give your allegiance to him and you unite with yourself with him, you belong to him. He's yours. He sets his seal upon you. There's a sign of it when we did the baptisms, the baptism service a few weeks ago, and you saw me do the oil on their head. You might have not heard me, but when I did the oil on, your, on their head, it's a part of our baptismal liturgy. I say, you are marked as Christ's own forever. The Lord wants to put the seal of salvation of his Holy Spirit on you so that you belong to him. Oh, the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord. Some of us need the healing balm of God's goodness today. Jay, can you help me out and minister for a minute on the piano? Some of us just need to be touched by the healing balm of God's goodness in some way today, whether like you just are aware that your, your image of God has just got like distorted and it's like caused you to, to be like afraid of him or to, to, to start playing around with other stuff that, that you know is not of him. Or maybe there's just a long time something in you and you just say, I just need to be touched by the Lord to, today. Um, we're a church, we're a family. We're the family of God, so we encourage one another, we bless one another. But if you just want to just be prayed for, for something, I want you to come up to the altar rail. It doesn't matter what other people think. Everybody wants to see people being touched by the Lord in this church. So I want you to just come up, just, just, take, a, just take a step of faith. Because when you stand up and you come up to the altar rail to receive prayer, you're in a sense, you're saying yes to God. You're responding to something that he's doing in, in your spirit. And so if there's any way that you just stir today and you just say, I just want to know the goodness of God a little bit more. I just want to say a prayer over you. I just want to pray over you that you'll experience a deeper measure of his spirit and his goodness in your life. So I want you to come forward just right now. And if everybody else would just kind of pray quietly, just close your eyes, extend a hand, be in agreement with me. Come, Thank you, Jesus. Just come up. It doesn't matter what it is. If you feel like the Lord's just stirring and I don't, you don't even know how to put your finger on whatever it is, just come up. Just come up and receive the Lord.